Hey, everybody, this is Taylor with a quick uh, little bit of pre-roll. Spoiler alert for today's results. But uh, I recorded this interview prior to Chelsea defeating Man City, therefore handing Liverpool the title. Congratulations to Liverpool. Congratulations to the many, many long-suffering Liverpool fans. I'm sure you all are celebrating accordingly and responsibly, I would hope. Uh, But I wanted to clarify why we weren't doing a congratulations Liverpool sort of show today. We will probably touch on that tomorrow once Daryl is back. But for now, I hope you enjoy some Serie A talk and I promise some Liverpool talk later on this week. Everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell. There is no Daryl Grove on today's episode because instead I'm talking to David Amoyal of the Couchio Land Pod about the return of Serie A. David, thank great to chat with you about live soccer again. I think I started with the Italian David and now I've switched to the American uh, David. Well, either works and it's wonderful to talk to you. It's wonderful to have games again yeah. to talk about. Uh, I have to say it's exceeded my expectation having Calcio back. And if I get to talk to you on your wonderful show, that makes it even better. There we go. Well, let's. Well, first of all, thank you very much for calling it wonderful. I'm assuming that's because you're just talking to me and not me and Daryl. Otherwise, it would just be <laughs> fine. Um, how has reopening in Syria gone so far? Because obviously there were concerns. There are concerns when any league is reopening. Um, but there, it sounds like it's gone smoothly, albeit with some objections. Like I know Lazio maybe haven't enjoyed the late kickoffs. But overall, how has it been so far? So I have to say, first off, that I was very skeptical that it would come back. Um, I think, you know, every country in Europe has handled things a little bit differently, depending on the situation on the ground in their country. I would say maybe also depending on the appetite of uh, the general populations for sports to come back. And obviously with Italy being ravaged, uh, having it as bad as anyone in Europe, uh, I was pretty skeptical that it would happen. And for a while, you know, they had this rule that if one player tested positive, they would have to quarantine the whole team for two weeks. And I was like, as long as there's that rule, there's really no way they'll be able to finish the season. But then uh, they were able to change that and make it that just the player who tests positive has to quarantine. And uh, once that happened, the game started. And I'm cautiously optimistic we'll be able to see it through the finish line. And uh, things have gone pretty well. Granted, in Italy, it's very hot already this time of year. That's the reasons why the games start later uh, than usual. But aside from that, I think it's been pretty good. And I would say the quality has been uh, fairly good as well, despite the big break. Well, let's, let's stick with that quality for a moment. We're going to talk about some of the bigger teams, as we tend to do when it comes to Serie A. But I wanted to start off with this one. In terms of like the lesser-known teams or players, who has impressed you the most in the restart? Who has maybe looked the sharpest coming back from this break? So I have to say, and I know they're a big team, but I'm going to start with Inter. I know their results were a little bit uneven because they were eliminated in the Coppa Italia against the Napoli. And yesterday they drew against Sassuolo in pretty crazy Inter fashion. But I think overall they've looked sharp. What's really impressed me about it is how they integrated Ericsson because that was the biggest question mark, I would say, for any team in Serie A coming back. Ericsson, of course, was the big addition in January. It took a little while for Conte to figure out 
how to put him in his scheme, and he's been outstanding since uh, we've come back. So I would definitely say he's really impressed me. Atalanta, I mean, the show they put on <laughs> yesterday was really something. And when you think of uh, the city that, uh, that Atalanta plays in, Bergamo is the, the city that was ravaged the most oh, yeah. uh, in Italy. And it's a great story, right? I mean, it's... Uh, it's really great that they've risen uh, from that. So they've uh, really, really impressed me of uh, the top teams. And look, Sassuolo, they gave up a ton of goals to Atalanta, gave up three to Inter, but still tied it. I do think they've actually been playing really rather well. They're always a team that I enjoy, too. So, yeah, I would say those were uh, some of my standouts. Parma, too, has looked pretty good. Kuluzevski, who's going to Juve once the new season start, uh, has looked really sharp. So those are the ones that really stand out to me the most. All right, let's let's take a couple of those in order. Let's go with Inter first. Uh, you mentioned crazy Inter. Is it Pazza Inter? Pazza Inter, yeah, uh, absolutely. Where does that come from? Because from what I understand, Antonio Conte is trying to do away with that. Like, apparently he is trying to remove references to that because he doesn't want them to be crazy Inter. He wants them to be calm and steady Inter, although that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Yeah, I mean, this is always what Inter has been like, right? In Italy, Juve has always been the corporate bond up type Milan has always been the club with big European ambitions big stars I mean Inter has always had a pretty big budget I mean you look at some of the players that they've had since the 90s really huge names but doing things really in pretty eccentric ways uh, you look at even Atalanta's coach Gasperini he was very briefly at Inter I think he lasted just four games so they are well known for bringing in coaches, not supporting them, turning things over. I will say things have changed a little bit at Inter with the new ownership. And they brought in, you know, Conte, of course, at Juve, Marotta as their executive director. And he was really one of the main architects for Juve. So really, in a lot of ways, Inter has become Juve 2.0. I think it's even interesting how they're building the teams. You know, last summer they added... Godin, they already had a stacked defense. Now it looks they are building a great midfield like Conte's first Juve. You know, obviously they added Ericsson in January. They are the favorites to sign Tonali, who's the most exciting young Italian midfielder with Zaniolo. So they are really kind of following the Juve blueprint. And everything that they do is very logical. And that has not been the interways in previous times, to say the least. Uh, it has been logical, except for maybe uh, the draw that you mentioned with Sassalo, the 3-3 draw earlier this week. Results in uh, Skriniar getting banned for three games, Conte getting banned for one. What happened there that uh, brought about those bans? Well, I will say Sassuolo has really had Inter's number in recent years in general. Uh, Inter to uh, Conte, who's always known for not doing a lot of turnover. And I would say I think Conte is in my short list for best managers in the world. But once, if he was only coaching one game a week, without a doubt, I'd take him over anyone. And once you start getting into two games... I feel like in a way he's overcompensating now with maybe rotating too much. Although you also have to wonder players that have been off for these many months, you know, can they really play these many games? So I think their depth got a little bit exposed there. Gagliardini had that awful miss in yeah. normal times. Maybe he doesn't even start at all. So I think, you know, 
um, the, these games being close and not having a really tested squad, uh, I think in the long run that really helps Juve. Maybe they don't have the best starting 11, but the most uh, depth Inter, it's really their core guys. Uh, but I think, you know, Inter, one more good uh, transfer window, I think they will be able to sustain multiple games a week. I just don't think they're there quite yet. And then add to that, that's the swallow just seems to have their number. Well, let's let's look at that squad for a moment. I think they're currently eight points behind Juve. So, yeah, it seems like it could be difficult for them to catch them this season. What moves do you expect them to make this offseason to overtake Juventus? It seems like the squad has a lot of big names, but maybe some of them won't be there that much longer. Well, I think Lautaro Martinez at this point, I would say it's more likely than I will stay. I think Barcelona is just not going to be able to uh, get the funds and Inter is not interested. I mean, I think they would maybe take one player back, but still want a lot of money for him. I don't think that's going to happen. And this Pjanic-R third deal, which Mm -hmm. as we're recording, looks very likely to happen. I don't see how that gets Barca any closer to that. So I think Lautaro will likely stay. Uh, I mean, Tonali, I think, is going to be their big addition, and he's a very intriguing midfielder. And, you know, a lot of people would say, look, the midfield is already very strong at Inter, but uh, Sensi, who was really intriguing player when he's healthy, is really terrific, but he's just always hurt, so they need more there. Uh, I think most Inter fans would tell you the one area where they really need to improve is at the wing-back position, but I think we can say that about a lot of clubs, not just in Italy. It seems like that's really one of the scarcest position on the market. So I'm curious to see um, what they do there. Uh, It's possible Godin after one season where he really hasn't totally fit in and then there's other alternatives. Maybe he'll be shipped off. I mean, his wages are really high, though, for a lot of teams. So I I think Inter, you know, in a lot of ways, Ericsson's already like a new player because they're just integrating. So I would expect Tonali and I could definitely see them trying to get at least one wing back that's an upgrade on what they have. Speaking of high wages, uh, I am a Manchester United fan. Any chance Inter are desperate to hold on to Alexis Sanchez or do you think he's going back to England when the season ends? I could actually see it as a loan, and I could see, you know, I, I don't think Inter would really pay a transfer fee, but if if they told Man United, look, you know, you're not going to use Sanchez, but you don't want his wages, we'll be happy to pay most of them. I think Sanchez has been pretty good at Inter as a bench player. I mean, obviously, he can't be a starter for them anymore. Uh, I think he's shown enough, and Conte has liked them in the past, and I think it works okay. So actually, I would say I think there's a more than decent chance he ends up staying, but I wouldn't expect the transfer fee. I would just see it as another year on loan. All right. That that makes me feel a little bit happier, but a move that definitely made me feel a little bit confused is the one you mentioned earlier, the Pjanic-Artur uh, deal. Uh, Pjanic, I think, valued at 60 million euros. Uh, Artur valued at 70. On the surface, that looks very strange to me, but it sounds like it's more or less the type of deal that you've been expecting to happen. Why aren't you as surprised by that move? Yeah, I'm not surprised by it at all. And I think this deal, we are going to see a lot of deals like this this summer. I I think the making it a swap makes these valuations, if you want to call them fishy, I wouldn't disagree <laughs> with you. I mean, if you keep in mind, Juve signed Pianis, and I know he had a low exit clause, and this was over three years ago for half of that. 
I've never been a big Pjanic guy, but I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that his value has doubled when he's three years older. But again, you know, uh, this is a swap deal. Arthur is probably also inflated there. I mean, long and short of it, Juve and Barcelona are looking to each make a big capital gain on it. And so when you sell a player, uh, the capital gain comes in right away and you record it for the year. When you make an acquisition, you are amortizing it over time. So look at it as if each of them is going to make a big profit on a player at a time where they need to balance the books. The new addition, they'll amortize over time. I think Pjanic is still a big name. I, I, I still definitely think he is. I mean, I think Arthur fits at Juve really quite well. I think on the pitch, it helps Juve probably more than Barca, but Barca also really needed to make a profit there. They've done good deals with Juve. Uh, not long ago, they made an exchange of youth team players where they each recorded a profit in a similar way. So if you will, that was a trial run for this deal and they did it on a bigger scale. And in general, I would tell all your listeners this summer, you are going to see some deals that from the sporting side, you're going to scratch your head. Uh, but then you start really looking at the finances and you'll be like, OK, now this makes sense, especially at a time where clubs have lost so much money with the pandemic. Much more still to come from my conversation with David Amoyal of the Couch Your Land podcast. But first, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Roman. If you had to guess on average how long it takes in a major American city to see a doctor, you would probably guess that the answer is 29 days because we've talked about it before. But 29 days is a very long time to wait to see a doctor, especially if you're dealing with with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you definitely want treatment ASAP. And I'm going to guess you want discreet treatment as quickly as possible. That's where Roman comes in. They've made it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. All you need to do is get your phone or your computer, any sort of device that allows you to connect to the internet, I would assume. You complete a free online visit. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if that doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor. Anytime you have questions, you want to adjust your treatment plan, they will handle that as well. Uh, So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. One more time, GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you very much to Roman for sponsoring this episode. Now back to David. So I'm just going to go ahead and and out myself here as as knowing very, very little about finance. Can you explain a little bit about why you think that type of move is going to be more common? Is it just because that way, like, clubs don't have to pay tax? Is it just a cheaper way of acquiring players without having to do the sort of transfer fee haggling? Like, what is it specifically? I know you talked about uh, amortization and things like that, which... I'll, I'll be honest, hurt my brain a little bit. So I'm excited <laughs> yeah, so to hear it explained I'll a bit more. It, I'll <laughs> do it even more simpler. So again, I think it, it, I, the best way to look at it is when you sell a player, uh, the profit comes right in right away in one chunk. Mm-hmm. When you buy a player, you are dividing the expense over the life of the contract. So look at it this way. Although in theory, Barcelona and Juve are sending 60 to 70 million, they are treating it as a separate transaction. So Juve is recording Pjanic as 60 million. Uh, 
that goes in as a profit above what's left of his value. So I would say 35, 40 million, I think is what it would be. So that comes in right away. Juve puts in a profit of 40 million on their books right now. Arthur, on the other hand, is going to cost them that transfer fee divided over the number of years. So look at it that way. It's kind of like a short term gain, bigger gain, and it's just over time. So, you know, it's kind of the value of money over time. I hope that's kind it does. of a, it does make sense, right? It does. It does indeed. Um, it also makes sense that Juve are not surprisingly uh, top of the table. As I said, eight points ahead of Inter, four points ahead of Lazio. And yet, Maurizio Sarri is still somehow on the hot seat. How much pressure is he on right now? How much is he dealing with? And more specifically, why is he still, still dealing with pressure? So... You know, what's interesting, and I read this and I was surprised in a way, you look at Sarri, his first year at Juve, so far he has more points than Conte, Capello, and uh, and Allegri had in their first season at Juve through 28 games. Sarri has actually done better than all of them. But Sarri was really brought to kind of change the way Juve plays and I think it's safe to say that has not been the case. I think most times you watch Juve play, you would almost assume Allegri is still the manager. It's very rare that you see the Sarri ball, the offensive style. I think I can say I've maybe seen it six games this year with Juve. The rest is more of the same, which, you know, is really interesting. You have to wonder why two managers that have such different philosophies ended up landing on the same style of play. And it probably has to do with... a catering to the stars and having the stars kind of perform the way they want to. So I think there's disappointment with that. Uh, I think the fact that Sarri lost two finals is very bad for Juve standard. He lost the Super Cup very decisively to Lazio last December, which feels like a lifetime ago. And then he loses the final to Napoli on penalty kicks. And Juve had one shot on goal. In the Coppa Italia final against Milan, they did the absolute bare minimum to win. So I think it's safe to say that it's disappointing. I'm a huge Sarri guy. I always felt it was kind of an awkward fit, but I was intrigued to see what he would do. So, I mean, I definitely think he's absolutely finishing the season. I think it's more likely than not he comes back next year as Juve manager, but I do think it's fair to say uh, there is some disappointment. Uh, The one thing that stands out in Allegri was really a great locker room manager, really good at managing big egos and stars, and Sarri just doesn't have that, and I wonder if he ever will. So if he doesn't, let's say, let's say they they do win the title, but next season they, they don't start very strongly, Juve decide, okay, that's it for us. Given the way it went for Juve, given the way it went at Chelsea, what sort of club do you think makes the most sense for Maurizio Sarri going forward? Is, is it a club where it's small enough that he can sort of build and do whatever he wants? Is it another large club who just embraces his style? What would you like to see from him? Uh, it's a great question. I absolutely want to see him on a mid-table team where he can just do uh, his thing. I think Fiorentina and Sarri are a match made in heaven. He's from the mm. Tuscany region. Fiorentina is a team that loves to play attractive football. They love the rivalry with Juve, getting their former manager if he were to go there. I would actually love it. I think for Comiso, it would actually be pretty cool. If that happens. So if I was sorry, that's what I would do. I just think, you know, at a big club, him trying to fit in and be more of the corporate type 
I kind of like, to be honest, the vulgar Sarri we saw at Napoli. I know probably not, definitely not the most PC manager by any means, but, you know, it was authentic and it was entertaining on and off the pitch. So I'd love to see that again, to be honest. I wouldn't want to see him at another big club. I think Roma could be pretty intriguing for Sarri. Uh, but if I had to pick, I would say Fiorentina as a match made in heaven. And is there, if it went south for Sarri, is there a manager you think is sort of waiting in the wings to take over at Juve? Will they appoint somebody from within the organization or will they go for a big manager from elsewhere? Well, I, I think they would love to have Guardiola, but I don't think that's going to happen even next uh, season. I do wonder if there's an appetite for an Allegri return. I mean, keep in mind in the past, the two managers that won Champions League at Juve, Trapattoni, and Lippi both left the club and eventually came back. It wouldn't surprise me. I I think Allegri at this point, though, would be better served doing an experience abroad. I also got to wonder for Allegri, you know, what's really the upside of going back to Juve beyond saying, I told you so, you guys ran me out of town and you want me back. Uh, so now I would say I could see Allegri Simone Inzaghi, you know, manages Lazio, was rumored to be on the short list for Juve. He's close to their sporting director, so he could be intriguing. I think if Juve wanted to do a really nice splash and entertaining, would be trying to get Gasperini from Atalanta. And he used to manage their youth team, so there is a connection there and I think Gasperini more than Sarri would really be able to bring that offensive style of play. But uh, I still think more likely than now we'll see Sarri on Juve's bench next season. Well, since you brought him up, let, let's talk Gasparini for a moment because uh, Atalanta went down 2-0 to Lazio. They come back and win 3-2. Uh, I've absolutely loved Atalanta this season. I love the sort of chaotic nature of the way they play. That is not chaotic at all. It's just that Papu Gomez can be anywhere at any time. Is that a feature of Gasparini? Is it sort of free, uh, like everybody do your job so that Gomez can pop up wherever he wants? Did he sort of build that team around him? Kind of, yeah. I, I think that is uh, safe to say. I mean, Gasperini plays a true three center back defense in the sense that, you know, he puts three at the back to say, OK, you guys are really in charge of defense and everyone else is really more about pushing forward. I think Papu Gomez, yeah, you're, it's very well said. He kind of has a lot more freedom than the other players to kind of be all over the pitch. So in that sense, it works uh, really well. I mean, I got to give a lot of credit, though, too, for Atalanta, the, what they did. Uh, to me, they showed a lot of maturity last year, really improving the bench, giving him options they didn't have before. I mean, Duvan Zapata, who was really, really a great striker, he was out for a few months and years past that would have absolutely destroyed Atalanta. But they had Luis Muriel, who leads Serie A and goals off the bench and did well as a starter. So they are just an extremely well-run club. But to me, it really goes back to having a manager that just fits perfectly with the culture. And to the credit of the team, they have brought in the players that fit in for his style. So if he did go to Juve, I'm assuming he would keep that same, like roughly that same style of play. In which case, who do you think at Juve does the Papu Gomez role? (laughs) I could see maybe Dybala. And here, by the way, we're really, I'm just spitballing. Yeah. I don't think there's, but it would be really fun. But I could see Dybala kind of really uh, thriving in that role because Dybala has always been a player that felt that never really had a position. And Allegri did try to give him a little bit of freedom. 
And it didn't work out too well. So, yeah, I could see Dybala doing that or even Kuluzevski, who they are bringing in. And I'm really high on that addition. I think a lot of people maybe don't know how good he is. But, yeah, I could see Dybala in that role. And, uh, look, Gasperini at Juve, there's always great center backs. It would really be fun to see, to be honest. Um, I will go ahead and say that I am one of those people who doesn't know the player you mentioned because I can't even say his name. Uh, who is that? And can you tell us a bit so, more about him? Kuluzevski. Uh-huh. He's been the breakout player at a Parma this season. And actually, he's a, he was owned by Atalanta, who talk about a very well-run club, a player who wasn't even on their squad. They sold him in January for about $40 million, pure profit as a homegrown player. And uh, Kuluzevski at Parma, been really sensational. Um, you know, he's a tall winger that can also play as a, Trequartista is in the midfield that runs all day. This is really what Juve lacks is that great pace and uh, running ability. Um, so I'm very intrigued by him. I actually think, you know, if Juve keeps Sarri, and I think it would make sense because they're going to have a very different midfield next season. They'll have Kuluzevski, Bentancourt has really taken a leap. This year, as we're recording this, it looks very likely that Arthur will join join that team. So all of a sudden, you have these three young midfielders. And I think for Sarri, it would be good uh, to mold them. So there's been a lot of complaints for good reason on Juve's midfield, but it could look radically different next year. So we talked about Atalanta. The team they beat, as I said, was Lazio, who are now four points behind Juve. Not, that doesn't mean the title race is gone, but it means it's certainly harder for Lazio, and then it may be hard for them to keep up that pace next year with some of the talent they have and potentially the talent that could be leaving. And that is my next question for you. How likely do you think it is that they're able to hold on to both of uh, Sergei milinkovic Savic and uh, Ciro Immobile? Very good. I actually would say Immobile for sure, no matter what. I think Milinkovic Savic, there's a good chance he stays. I think the pandemic in general makes it hard for huge transfer fees. And you wouldn't see a big swap deal for Milinkovic Savic because A Lazio is an example. They're in much better financial shape than Juve. They really don't have any debt, they don't have to worry about financial fair play in any way. Milinkovic Savic loves living in Rome. Same with Immobile. I think especially if they don't win the title, I think there's going to be a lot of desire to bring to bring the whole gang back together and go for it. Because I do think Lazio, and I think they would have a point in had there not been the pandemic, had we gone ahead and finished the season as scheduled, they would have been tough to beat because they were out of the Europa League. I think they were supposed to play 12 games in 54 days. Like they had it made compared to Juve. And now the new schedule has absolutely flipped that completely. So I think between the financial impact, making it hard for huge bids and this desire of not that we got robbed, but it, we sh- this should have been our title. I really wouldn't be surprised if they all come back next season. And I have been sort of jumping ahead to, like, what are these teams going to do to compete with Juve next season? As I said, the title race is not yet decided. Do you think there's a chance that any one team could pull it back, or does it feel like Juve will sort of inevitably roll to another title? No, I I think there's a chance. Like, look, that was a tough blow yesterday. But, you know, losing to Atalanta, any Serie A team could lose. And honestly, any team in Europe could lose to Atalanta. I'm really intrigued to see what they do in this tournament in the Champions League. I would not want to face them. But 
Uh, so, no, not a huge deal to lose to them. They still have another match against Juve, and Lazio has had Juve's number. Juve does have a fairly difficult schedule the rest of the way. Uh, to me, Juve's advantage is, okay, I don't think their starting 11 is as good as Lazio's. I think that's a safe statement. But their alternatives are basically as good as their starting lineup. Uh, you go to Lazio, that is not the case. Um, I would argue that you have any big injury at Juve, even Ronaldo, I think in a way they can overcome it. You take away Immobile, Milinkovic, Savic, or Acerbi from Lazio, like, that's the end right there. Like, right now they're without Lucas Lieva, and it's kind of showing a little bit. But I wouldn't count out Lazio because, again, they have that one match against Juve, and they have done very well against them. But I would say Juve beating Bologna and Lazio and Inter dropping points, like, it really could not have gone better mm -hmm. for them now. I think that has certainly improved their odds of winning the title. Hey everybody, Taylor interrupting one more time to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Fubo. Uh, Fubo TV is our favorite way to watch uh, all things soccer because they give you access to many, many soccer channels. And then when you sign up for, say, the family plan, you can have three people watching simultaneously. So you could watch three different games if you've got three different rooting interests. Uh, if you can't watch all of them at once, they have the 500 hours of storage. So you can just record them all and watch them at your leasure. Uh, as we have said in the past, you get access to, say, NBC, NBC Sports, you get Be In, you get Fox and all the surrounding Fox channels, and there's also exciting news. If you missed it, Fubo have signed a deal with Disney that allows them to eventually start uh, having ESPN on there as well. They're not sure of when that will launch officially, but if ESPN or the lack of ESPN was one of the things that was making you hold out from pursuing Fubo, now you don't have that reason anymore, or at the very least, you soon will not have that reason. So you get access to all those channels plus your regular channels fubo is terrific and it allows you to stay updated on your favorite leagues as well as your local broadcast news you can go to fubo.tv slash tss today and start your free seven-day trial you will not regret it that's fubo.tv slash tss start your free trial today thank you very much to fubo for sponsoring this episode now back one last time to david amoyal uh, Milan, not in the title race, but they do have Zlatan, which is a thing that I kind of entirely forgot. Uh, I thought maybe he wasn't playing anymore. He is still playing. I don't believe he played against Lecce, uh, where Milan got that big win. Uh, how has this season been for Zlatan, and what do you think uh, will happen with him after this season? So I think Zlatan's been a very good addition for Milan. Like right now, he's hurt. He had a knee injury and during the pandemic, but he's supposed to be back fairly soon. Uh, he's performed on the pitch. I think more than anything, what's really important is he has helped develop their younger players. Uh, I think having a, a true professional, a point of reference, someone that can take the attention away after a tough game, you know, having all the attention on Zlatan as opposed to the younger players is a huge help. So I think he's a plus. And I personally think Milan should try to keep him one more season again just because of the impact he has on young players. You know, there's going to be another big revolution of Milan. We'll have almost certainly Ragnic come in from the Bundesliga. Uh, it'll be very different. You know, every time Milan does a change, I'm always trying to talk my way 
into it. This one does seem pretty smart. Uh, Zlatan obviously is going to want a big, big salary, which Milan's going to have to be very careful with. But I would definitely consider bringing him back because of the impact on the younger players. You might have just broken some news to me there. I didn't know that Ralf Rangnick was was uh, linked with Milan, let alone likely to go there. Uh, how did they pull that off, and what do you think that will mean for them? So it's been in the works for a while, and uh, Boban, who was running with Maldini, the club, uh, he abruptly left and he was fired at, in the winter because he came out and said, you know, behind my back, they are going to talk to Ragnic. And then even Maldini was usually very diplomatic, <laughs> had some very harsh words. And Ragnik publicly has kind of talked about the talks with Milan, which Maldini did not appreciate. So it does seem rather likely uh, that's that's going to happen. I think for Milan, this makes a lot of sense because the financial situation is really dire. Milan, it's not just that they need to get young players and turn into stars. It's even at the point where they have to sell their good young players and replace them with someone that costs half as much and that can perform as well. And I think Ragnic is absolutely perfect for that. Like, I'll be honest, I don't know. I don't follow the Bundesliga that closely, but everything that I've read about him, Mm -hmm. he really checks uh, those boxes. So uh, I'm very intrigued. And as we're recording, it looks really rather likely that he'll be there. I would say there's an 85% chance he'll be running Milan, probably both as a director and coach. All right, so they could have a a new director and a new coach. Uh, They could have a a new crop of young players coming through. What's the likelihood they have a new stadium coming through anytime soon? Uh, I'm always very skeptical with that. I mean, even this week, one more time, we heard again about new stadiums and plans. But you know what? I mean... I would say even in the past five years, we've heard something like this 10 times. You know, uh, Rocco Comiso owns Fiorentina. I did an interview uh, very good with Chloe Beresford on Forbes, and he was talking about the Italian bureaucracy and how impossible it is to deal with it. It seems to me the stadium, when it comes from Milan and Inter, is always a great thing to talk about when things aren't going great for the clubs. It's kind of a way to change the subject. So I wouldn't be too optimistic on that. On the bright side, I still think San Siro is a pretty great place for games. I also don't think it's like a huge priority either. Uh, one more club I, I wanted to ask you about, and this is sort of a, a big question, so do with it what you will. But it's about AS Roma. Uh, currently, I think fifth in the table. I might have that wrong. But Roma feels like a team that should be bigger, should be better. And I guess my question is basically, why aren't they? Why aren't they a team that regularly competes for titles, is up there? Because it seems like they, they have the money, they have the support, they have had the big-name players at times, but you don't see them sort of move to that next level. Every now and then they seem to, but for the most part, they don't and i'm wondering what you think it is that sort of holds them back so i would say it's a couple of things um i mean palotta's owned the club for a while but he did inherit really a catastrophic financial situation it's gotten a little bit better but not great either um i'd say so that's certainly a factor and i'm not blaming palotta i'm blaming the situation he inherited i but the other issue is uh, Rome is the, the most pressure place in all of Italy. I think there's more pressure at Roma, certainly at Juve. I would say probably Inter and Milan combined. It's close to have the pressure 
There's that Roma. It's just really a place where the expectations from the fan base are really, really high. Uh, you know, they love the homegrown players. I think, you know, at Roma, there's a lot of fans that would tell you, you know, we'd rather be in the second division with 11 Roman players than win the Champions League with all people from not from Rome. So I think it's the parochial thing is part of that as well. I mean, look, they've come pretty close a few times, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's more than anything the pressure of being there from the fan base. All right. Well, speaking of pressure, uh, we've talked about a lot of clubs. We always talk about the different clubs in Serie A. We don't often talk about the national team. And that's one thing that I think because they don't go to the 2018 World Cup and then because the Euros are suspended, we haven't had the chance to really talk much about Mancini in Italy. How has he been doing and what are your impressions of him uh, thus far? How is he handling that pressure? I think it's impossible to argue that he's, I mean, he's done a fantastic job. I think there's no way around it. I think, you know, he's very well suited for this role. I think the fact that Mancini has coached abroad so much, and he obviously was in England, he was in Russia, he was in Turkey. I think that's really well-rounded, and we haven't seen that with a manager for Italy like that. And I think that's definitely uh, been good. I think he deserves a lot of credit. He started bringing in young players, even when they weren't starting for their clubs. He also wasn't afraid to uh, select players who were abroad. I mean, I'm sure you remember when Jovinko was an MLS and the Italy managers not bringing him in because they had this stuck up attitude that you need to be in Serie A. He's changed that. Uh, really good for him. I think you couldn't be happier with what he's done. And look, obviously the pandemic's a terrible thing, but I think it really helps Italy because A, those players, and they have a very young nucleus, are going to be one year older. Zaniolo, who I think has the potential to be the best Italian player, and maybe he already is a takeaway defense, uh, he's coming off his ACL injury. He'll be fully healed by next year. So I think it's worked out really well. Like, um, Bellotti has been a pretty good number nine. Like, Immobile is great for Lazio. It's never really worked out for Italy. But it seems uh, he's really checked a lot of boxes. I think Italy is a, is a really nice position. I think even for the World Cup after, um, big change. So I think Mancini definitely deserves a lot of the credit for that. He's also been lucky in the sense that a lot of uh, players developed at the right time. Italy now has so many good central midfielders. It's really an embarrassment of riches. And you looked at the team that Ventura couldn't take to the World Cup. Now, look, he did a bad job. But, you know, I've been following Italy for a long time. That was not a talented team. And there's definitely more talent. But uh, Mancini has made the best of it. So I give him an absolute A, and it's well-deserved. So you've already mentioned Tonali. You you now mentioned Zaniolo. Uh, I'm going to remove those from my, my my last question for you. So of the three remaining players, uh, Gaetano Castrovilli, uh, Federico Chiesa, and uh, Ricardo Orsolini, uh, who do you think will be the kind of biggest performer from Italy? Who will become? Who's most likely to become a household name? Uh, so I would say, in general, I think Castrovilli is the best of the three by a decent margin really really impressive great technical ability he he needs to improve his finishing but really really intriguing player i'm not a big chiesa guy but i will say for italy i could see him do well he was 
excellent for the under 21 in the tournament last year, really stepped up to the plate there. So it wouldn't shock me if Chiesa, you know, there are some players that we see on a lot of national teams that are great for the national team and maybe not so good for club. I could see Chiesa being in that mode. I, I do like Orsolini and at the club level, honestly, if you told me you'd rather have Orsolini or Chiesa, I'd probably rather have Orsolini because he does get assists and goals. I feel like Chiesa is kind of like a QB in the NFL that can get you in the red zone, but can't get you a touchdown, can't get over the hump. Orsolini can do that, and he's an intriguing player. But I think Castrovilli of the three uh, is the one I'd bet on the most. All right. And then last question for you. Uh, what have you all got going on over at the Caccio Land Pod? I know you've been having some good guests on. You've been changing it up a little bit. There was a lot of Italian spoken on one of the episodes I listened to. So <laughs> what have you all been doing? What have you got going on? Yeah, it turns out it's a lot easier to do a podcast when there's games. That's one thing yep. uh, that I've learned. But I'm very proud of the fact that we never stopped. Like, you know, we did two episodes a week, even during the pandemic. It's not easy, but I'm proud nope. <laughs> we did that. You know, we did a little bit of nostalgia. I tried not to get too much into that. Uh, but now, you know, we're back in the transfers. I know the Arthur Pianic, and I know we talked a little bit about that. That's completely in our wheelhouse. Like we really like breaking that down in a lot of different ways, you know, with the games back, you know, we have predictions and uh, we do winners and losers from the weekend, try to keep it light and yeah you know we do try to bring in guests from italy it's rare that we speak in italian like our oracle that does picks in italians the exception but we throw it in here or there but i like to bring people from italy it's kind of uh interesting to hear uh their perspective as i was mentioning to you before we started recording there's just a lot of podcasts out there now so it just makes me uh i always ask myself you know what do i have that maybe other people don't so you know i like geeking out on transfers i like talking culture with people in italy so you'll be hearing uh, a lot of that and we'll also have always a little bit of pop culture to change it up as well there we go uh well we did uh to keep sort of ourselves going during the pandemic we did the international champions cup of history is what we called it where we basically picked the best teams from like throughout history starting with like the 1950s era thereabouts we have three italian teams remaining at this point uh i guess the last question i have for you is of these three which one would you expect to do the best in a knockout tournament to go the farthest we have uh the napoli team from 85 to 90 so maradona's napoli we uh-huh. have Inter Milan, uh, 64 to 67, and we have Milan, 88 to 1990. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm very biased towards Milan. I didn't grow up a Milan fan, but that team with Saki, uh, definitely the best Italian club team I ever saw. I mean, I love the Maradona's Napoli. I enjoyed watching that uh, I would give an edge to that. Like the old school Inter, the Catenaccio Inter, definitely a great team as well. But I would say Saki's Milan uh, from that time period is the one I would pick. I mean, they just had everything. You know, you have Maldini and Baresi on defense. You have Van Basten, mm-hmm. one of the greatest number nines of my lifetime. You have Rijkaard. I think Donadoni. Uh, if you told me Donadoni is the best Italian midfielder of the past 30 years, I'd 
probably wouldn't argue too much. So, no, I, I would definitely pick Milan. A, a great shout. I would like to see them all go all the way in your tournament. <laughs> I'm rooting for them. I, well, if they don't, I'm sure we'll hear about it. But I hope uh, people will check out the Couchu Land pod. And, David, thank you once again for uh, making sense of Serie A with me today. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Taylor. Thank you so much. I love the show you guys do, and it's wonderful to be part of it once in a while. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have you again on soon. Thank you very much. My, my pleasure, my friend. Thanks again. I really appreciate it.